Okay, so if you're like me, the top button of my jeans just didn't quite want to go today. Did you have any of that trouble? I, I was reading, I was reading in, um, in an article about what to do with uh, Thanksgiving leftovers. Anybody have leftovers left? No, nothing left? Wayne, you got something left? Okay. Okay, we've been eating, um, we've been eating on ham for a couple of days. That's a good thing. Ham kind of lasts quite a ways if we take care of it okay. Um, so at your house, do they call it dressing or stuffing? Okay, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. You hear them. Uh, okay, so you, you just don't do that in Oklahoma. John? Uh, absolutely. Now, what you'll need to know, the reason Rhonda's not here today, her dad has been with us for the last four or five days, and uh, we had him make the cornbread, John, to make the dressing out of, and it, it was wonderful stuff. So, but, but it's dressing in Oklahoma, I think. Anyway, so they say that you can take your dressing. I don't even know how safe this would be. They say you can take your dressing and put it in a waffle iron and make waffles out of dressing. Kind of does sound good, doesn't it? I kind of like it with a little crust on it anyway, so, I, you know. Ah, so, so you cook it in there, you just, ah. Okay. John, I kind of like that thought. That's pretty good. You know, the other one I read about, and this one doesn't sound very good to me, is you make a quiche using leftover green bean casserole. Not real sure about that, but okay. You'd have to put eggs and cheese and stuff in it, I think, too. But Okay, so if you try that, call me. I'll come over and at least taste it, okay? You don't have any left. Yeah, our daughter eats that stuff like it's going out of style. So anyway, happy Thanksgiving, and now officially I can say Merry Christmas. It's, uh, it's time for that. And uh, we're going to celebrate that. Over the, uh, I will be in uh, Matthew 1 for the next couple of weeks. We'll end this study on uh, love today. And I'll be in uh, Matthew 1 next week. We'll talk about Jesus' DNA for a, for a week or so. And uh, anyway, we'll get to spend a little time together. I'm not sure. I asked Bill Search last week what the holiday schedule is for the church, what the Christmas schedule is for Sunday school and that kind of thing. And he told me, but there's, it was still a little bit up in the air, Teresa. So I'll let you know next week. We'll be in next week. We'll be in the week after that. And then I don't know. So um, I know there'll be some of those weeks where we won't have Sunday school. And I think, Teresa, don't I remember there's even one week where we won't have live church. I think between the holidays, they're going to be virtual only. I, I want to get it straight before I tell you. So um, anyway, so... Cliff, I love the look on your face. Only the Christmas Eve service. Yeah, Christmas Eve's all virtual. And the 27th or whatever that Sunday is, I think that, anyway, I'm, I'm not going to say it because it may not be the case, but, huh? Okay. I think things are a little up in the air, which you can, um, everything is up in the air, isn't it? Uh, where my son serves, the church where he serves, the three, the, there are three campuses there kind of on the, on the beach in, um, in um, Michigan, they're going starting today 
virtual for three weeks and try to come back on the 20th. Because, you know, Michigan's kind of locked down anyway. So anyway, so it stay tuned. Is that fair? Can it just say stay tuned? And we'll let you know as soon as I know and, and uh, we'll try to keep you informed. But uh, grateful to see you here. Yeah. Uh, everything is subject to change except a vending machine. And it'll just keep your change. Okay, I've never heard that, but that makes perfect sense to me. Um, makes perfect sense to me. Now, I want us to go to 1 John and finish. You know, we've been for, for weeks now uh, talking about love. So let me begin this subject today by talking a little bit for a few minutes at least about hate and hatred. You know the name Kerry Newhoff? I read him some. He's a blog, Christian blogger and a thinker about all things Christian. And um, um, Newhoff says, um, and I may not be saying his name right, right, but I think I am. He says that Christians, um, that non-Christians hate Christians because they think they're judgmental and hypocritical and insincere as friends. But history tells the stories of many Christians who were none of those things. I was talking to kind of coaching somebody this week who was uh, um, just beginning to read the Bible for themselves. Uh, and they're kind of coming to, toward the end of their lives. They're worried about some things. And they've just for the first time begun to read their Bible. And one of you is coaching them in, uh, in things of faith. And we talked a little bit about hypocrisy. None of us like hypocrisy, do we? But there are hypocrites in every arena, aren't they? So if I get it right, I better get it right in terms of love. If I get nothing else right, I better get that right, I think, is one of the messages uh, uh, we're, we're dealing with. Um, this week, I saw you in action, heard about you in action, being real and being loving. And that's what the world needs. So um, the three letters of John, we're going to look at just one of them today and, and really one chapter, the third chapter of 1 John. The three letters of John were likely written about the same time as the Gospel of John, which we've looked at for the last three or four weeks. Maybe the 80s or 90s A.D., uh, they re reflect a, a personal relationship with the people that he's writing to. Early Christian, um, um, literally a church probably um, that, that John has a relationship in Ephesus, uh, that Paul, a church that Paul planted probably back in the 50s, and now it's in the 80s or 90s, and John is there. Some believe that Timothy, Paul's kind of uh, ward, his charge uh, might have been the pastor there, and John might have been one of the pastors there. Can you imagine? It became known as one of the great discipling churches of the New Testament age. I can imagine why, with John there, with Timothy there, uh, and, and um, Timothy having been coached by Paul. So John writes as kind of a senior statesman to the church um, he is likely, by the time he writes this, the last one of the original 12 apostles who's living. 
and he's got some things to say to them. He's going to talk about some problems that they have in the church. But when he does so, I love it. When he addresses heresy, when he addresses those who think as long as they're teachers, they don't have to live right. When he addresses um, um, the assurance of salvation for believers that's taught by Jesus, all these things, when, when he, even when he has to correct them, he calls them dear children. That's an indication of his uh, relationship with them, his uh, affection for them. And it's also a great way to approach somebody when you're trying to correct them, isn't it? Hey, man, I want you to know I love you, but i got to talk to you about some things because I love you. That's kind of his approach to this. Okay, so um, let's go. We're going to begin with verse 11 in chapter 3. And uh, Steve Blair, can I get you to read uh, 11 down through 15? And we'll kind of get started on our lesson for today. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, belong to the evil one who murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal, eternal life in him. Okay. So I think John is saying, let's go back to the basics. And the most basic element of the Christian experience is love. John is going to say in 4.19, God is love. That's a great verse to, uh, to memorize. He's just going to define God in terms of love. That's his understanding, his perspective on God. I want you to go back with me to John, the Gospel of John 13. We've looked at this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we looked at it and kind of referred back to it uh, last week because it's so important. John 13, and I want somebody to read verse 34 and 35. It's so important for us to remember the absolute crux of the Christian message is this thing that you and I are calling love and loving well. Somebody got John 13 and read 34 and 35. Uh, Laura, would you mind to read that? So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Love each other. What was going on in John 13? The Last Supper, okay? Thursday night before crucifixion on Friday, midday. And Jesus says, you got to catch this. You got to catch, if you catch nothing else, catch this. Love each other. Now, I think it's interesting here that the words of the master said to him in that intimate context, only 13 of them in the room probably, 50 years before, stuck. You know what? What are your kids going to remember 50 years from now? I'm afraid to ask that question. What are they going to remember that I said? I, I'm finding myself these days, it's interesting, my, my dad's been gone a long time, been gone like 17 years. 
And I find myself quoting him more today than I did when he left us in 2003. Um, I, I just remember witty things that he said and wise things that he said. And, uh, you know, Wayne, plumbers are wise guys. I mean it. Uh, yeah. And, and I remember a lot of things that just fit into situations that I get into. John is in the middle of some really crucial teaching, and he remembers back 50 years and says, you got to get this if you get nothing else. God is love, and you and I must remember the message. We ought to love one another. Now, isn't it interesting that he immediately shifts this discussion to hatred from the subject of love. So if you look at verse 12, he talks about Cain. Now, I put uh, the reference in, in your, in your uh, notes. We won't go all the way back to there, but uh, the story of Cain and Abel is told in Genesis 4, first five or so verses of Genesis 4. What do you remember about that story? Was it Cain's offering that was the problem? It was, it was Cain's heart. Abel offered an animal sacrifice from a pure heart. It wasn't that Cain offered only grain. Catch that, by the way. And by the way, here's a little thing to think about. Isn't it interesting that the, that the very first murder in humanity was caused over an argument about how to worship God? How to give the right thing. So God calls Cain out on it, not because he's, God reads the evil in Cain's heart. Uh, uh, that's what goes here. The message is not, I don't know if I gave you the first blank, did I? The message has not evolved. It remains the same 2,000 some years later from when this was written. And Cain's actions are confirmed by the evil in his heart. It wasn't his gift, it was his heart that was a difference. Now, in verse 13, John is going to tell us, don't be surprised if you're hated by the world. Now, I, I think we've got to define this, and I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about uh, what John means here by, quote, the world, end quote. What is that? Or who is that? Corrupt, non-believing world. Okay. Keep going. Those who are watching you. Well, I, I think we're all kind of watching each other to see what reality is there. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that probably we're talking about those apart from God, I think, in verse uh, 13, who are rebellious toward God in some way, probably, okay? There's a hatred there. Now, by the way, if, if the world hates you, uh, whatever that, the world is, if, if the world hates you, then you're in really good company because they hated Jesus too. Remember that? Uh, there were none in Jesus' day outside of the family of faith who accepted him and embraced him. Most of them rejected him. Read, uh, as part of your Christmas reading, 
Read about verse 11 and 12 in the first chapter of the Gospel of John where he says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. There's a rejection there. The world that rejected Jesus may just reject you. Got to be ready for that. Uh, He's not going to lie to you about that. Uh, and, And so, don't be surprised, he says, if the world hates you. Okay, now, what I need to understand is that when somebody rejects me or hates me, that's apart from Christ, I need to recognize, I think, that that flows out of a hatred or rebellion from God himself. Okay? It's going to be hard not to take that personally. But i got to think about who the world is and what they have really rejected, not me, but him. Todd? Yeah. No, I think so. I think self-centeredness or selfishness is a byproduct of that rejection. And or it's either the selfishness that's caused it or it's a byproduct of it. The, the problem is, Todd, I meet a lot of those who claim to be in Christ who are also kind of self-centered. I've got to be careful with that, right, that I don't become that way. I think so. There you go. It's the way of the world. So if I find myself buying into that or living in that way in, to some degree, what I realize is that I have allowed the world to squeeze me into its mold instead of the other way around, Romans 12. Okay, let's go on to verse uh, 14. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. So the idea here is, somebody go to John 5.24, Gospel of John 5.24. John, can I get you to go there in a minute? It's, it's going to kind of parrot this. He says it in a different way here. But it's talking about here our assurance of salvation in, in um, 5.24 and here in verse 14. Our, our assurance of salvation is based on love for Jesus and it's evidence in my love for somebody else. I can talk all day long about how much I love Jesus. And I can talk to him all day long about how much I love him. But regularly, he's going to put people in my path and say, okay, if you really love me, then love them. That's where the rubber meets the road. The assurance of my salvation comes from not just saying I love Jesus, but proving it by loving his people and others. Yes. This sounds strange, but I feel like that Stephen and I are called to a certain group of people. And that group of people are homosexuals. But you're in a unique place to be able to, to help them in, in a certain way. I get, you know, I'm in a, this season of my life, I'm, I'm in a kind of a unique place to get to love on 20 year olds and 22 year olds. That's difficult. You know, and, 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 and I'm meeting kids that come from all over the world. And I'm thinking, okay, there may be my mission field, Laura. Yeah. Uh, John, read John 5, 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes in him sins has eternal life and will not 
crossed over from death into life. You hear the same word in 514, uh, in, in 314? We know that we've from death to life. How? Because I love others. Because we have love each for the other. So it's kind of that idea. Um, is hatred within the family of God inconceivable? It should be. It should be. I've got to recognize it and call it out in myself and ruthlessly deal with it because the barometer of faith in Jesus in my life is lived out in love. That's kind of what we've been saying all these weeks. So he goes on to say, then anyone who uh, hates his brother or sister is a murderer. Where does he get that idea? Yeah. You know, I think I'm, I think I'm able to find the reference. I put it in your uh, on your outline today. It's Matthew five. They're right in the middle of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. These are words in red. You've heard it. Ancients were told you should not commit murder. And whoever commits murder should be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother should be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, should be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, should be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus equates anger, malice? I think I put those two words in, uh, to fill in your blank. Um, John learned this from Jesus, that anger and malice or hatred, you can put hatred in there in one of those blanks, are comparable to murder. It certainly leads toward it, doesn't it? So I find it really intriguing here that John, the, the guy, the self-proclaimed uh, disciple whom Jesus loved, you could call him the disciple of love, now, by the way, don't get lost in that. For those of us who lived through the 1970s, don't get lost in that and think, you know, I'm a disciple. I mean, he wasn't a hippie. I mean, not that kind of thing. Isn't it interesting that John takes time in a serious letter to some people that he dearly loves and talks about hatred and murder? Let's keep unpacking it. John, can I get you to go back to 1 John 3 and read 16, 17, and 18? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid out his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with word or tongue, but with action and in truth. I want you to look at verse 16 that John just read. What do you think? Is John, is 1 John 3.16 as important as John 3.16? Yes. 
I kind of think so. You catch that? Somebody want to quote out loud John 3.16 so we're all on the same page? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should have eternal life. Shall not perish but have, eternal, have everlasting life. Okay. And then here it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So there's that John 3.16. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's really interesting to me. So, so the idea here would be that Jesus laid down his life willingly even for his enemies. So uh, when I think about who his enemies are, and we've been talking about a little bit about hatred and the world's hatred of him and us, but when I think about that, I am drawn to Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You could translate that, I think, not literally, but the concept is while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. That makes it really personal with me. Okay? While I was far from God. By the way, let me, let's unpack that phrase for a minute, that term. I think it's a good one. Okay? Is there anyone in your life, anyone that you're working with, or anyone that you're praying for, who that you would determine, at least at this point in your life, is far from God? Okay, it's just, yeah, Wayne, you and I have talked about some people in your life that are just kind of far from God. I'm, I have other friends who are just saying, would you pray for my friend? He's far from God. Would you pray for my son, my daughter? They are far from God. I think that's a really descriptive term. It's not intended to be a judgmental term. It's just intended to be a person to say, okay, they're just in rebellion. They're at enmity with God. And maybe there's somebody in your life, my guess is around every one of these tables, there's somebody in your world that kind of fits that description. Jesus died for them. And in verse 16 kind of leveraging that, John says, if he died for his enemies, and you and I were included in that group, then we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus laid down his life willingly, even for his enemies. And then in verse 17, John makes this really practical. He talks about helping those. He pushes it all kind of down to a smaller scale, something within the reader's daily experience. And he says, what about that person in need? He makes the teaching really practical. All the way down to the person in need. Go back just a book or two to the book of James. James 2, I'm going to read from verse 15 down to 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm to be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. When, when James talks about the connection between faith and action, he's talking about helping somebody. And so what we're dealing with here, a practical teaching, 
uh, John says, if you want to demonstrate love, then do it in some practical fashion. Well, let's go back to verse 18. Little children, here's where he, he's going to get kind of solid with them when he calls them little children. You know? Uh, did your mom ever call you a different name when she was getting ready to let you have it? My mother called me by my full name. Yep. Stephen Coel, I knew I was in trouble. Okay? And added capital letters. Hey, there probably were capital letters there. Remember, she was a school teacher for 33 years. She knew how to kind of get solid with a kid, you know. Um, I, I watched her do that in the classroom a lot, which was kind of wonderful to see. Little children, he says in verse 18. Any claim to love has to be observable. It's got to be observable. How does he say it? Let us not love in word, with word, with the tongue, but in deed and in truth. You think I would have stayed married 43 years, almost 44 years, if I had told Rhonda I loved her on June 10th, 1977, and then never said it again nor proved it the next 43 and a half years? Probably not going to work out all that well. You know? What I heard, Katie, in this service that you and I were in yesterday is that these, this couple lived out their love for each other every day. I'm sure they said it a lot, but that wasn't what their kids was, were talking about. They were talking about how they demonstrated it. It's observable. If the world is going to be changed, it will be because they observe the love I have within me for them and the love that we have for each other. Okay, John, can I come back to you and have you read the last, oh, what's that, six verses maybe? 19 down through 24. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in the earth. Whenever our hearts begin us, for God is greater than our hearts, Everything. Dear friends, if our heart do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask. Because we obey His command and do what pleases Him. And this is His command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Those who obey His commands live in Him and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know on the spirit this is tricky, so, so stick with me here. We need to pay attention to our hearts, but our hearts aren't an infallible guide. Okay? They're not in, our hearts are not infallible. But when I'm talking about my heart, I'm not talking about this thing that pumps. I'm talking about who I really am down deep inside my soul. A lot of people have, um, in, in, there have been periods of my life where I've thought, okay, am I going the right way? Am I doing the right thing? And uh, someone will say, well, what is your con let your conscience be your guide. My conscience is not always reliable. Okay? Uh, in fact, 
in his teaching to Timothy, um, Paul says, you know, if you say no to the Holy Spirit enough, your conscience can become seared like with a hot iron. The word that's used there is your heart can be cauterized. You ever been cauterized for a surgery? They, it creates a scab. It creates scar tissue where it's burned. In this case, from saying no over and over again. And my heart becomes cauterized against the things of faith, against the things that the Spirit's trying to tell me. So what I'm going to tell you is that my heart may or may not be always a reliable barometer of truth. It needs to become more so. But our confidence comes from a lack of condemnation. Now, if you're like me, you do guilt pretty well. I do guilt really good. How about you? You know, what have I done? Yeah, how many times do I ask myself that in a period? What have I done? John is really helping you and I with that. He's helping us with this assurance of my salvation, assurance of my place with God. And it has to do something here in verse 22. In verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This is something I need to ask him about. And he's going to invoke the Spirit of God by the time we get down to verse 24, capital S, Spirit of God, who is a he, the third person of the Trinity. Third person doesn't mean he's third in order or third in rank. But he's available to me when I say yes to um, the Son, through the, through the Father, through the Son. And I can say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, tell me where I'm right. Tell me where I'm wrong. Would he not answer that prayer? I don't think there's any reason why he wouldn't answer that prayer. So who is the Spirit and what does he do? He convicts me. But you know what? There's positive conviction and negative conviction. He convicts me where I'm going right. And there are times when he puts his arm around me. I can feel it. And he says, uh, time out, partner. We need to take a left turn right up here. You're going the wrong way. I can sense him. I can feel him. I can hear him. By the way, when I hear him most is when I open this. And when I ask him to speak to me, he has never not spoken to me when I ask him to, when opening his word. So the command of verse 23, uh, sorry, let's go back to 22 because I want to fill in your blanks and we'll close up right here. Once again, we're told to ask the right things. You've got whatever you need if you'll just ask for the right things. And he gives us a command here to believe and to love. To believe and to love. Okay, so. Here's my closing question, and it's kind of a closing question for this series as well. What does the evidence of my life reveal about the secrets in my heart? God himself only completely knows me. The truth is, you remember back to verse 19 and 20, I don't even completely know myself. But he knows me. 
What is the evidence on the outside of my life that reveals about the secret part of me that only God can read through his spirit in my heart? Sometimes somebody will say to me, well, I don't know if we did the right thing here, but I think our heart was in the right place. That's a good thing. If somebody says to you, I really love your heart in this. I've got a friend in Florida who is smarter than I'll ever be. He, maybe it's because he went through the Marines, you know. Uh, Marines learn to be wise. And he loves Jesus. And when he's going to confront something, he will say, invariably he'll say, I want you to hear my heart. I want you to hear my heart. Do you hear God's heart? What is God's heart saying to your heart? He's trying to speak there. Live this assured kind of life as a result of knowing that you have loved well. Okay, next week, I'm going to take you over to the, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to start right there in chapter 1. and We're going to look at Jesus' DNA. We're going to try to get that helix unraveled a little bit, okay? Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas to you. I'll see you next week. God bless you.